morning. You glad to be at New Spring this morning? Yeah. Uh, happy Independence Day weekend. Let me just say something. Uh, this is a strange church. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but churches are not supposed to grow in the summer. Don't y'all know that? <laughs> no, it's awesome what God is doing at New Spring, and we continue to grow <laughs> right even through the summer. And, and can I just say something to you? I know that this 11:15 service, it can get a little crowded in the parking lot. It can be tough to get in, get checked in. And then on top of that, uh, just to be candid with you, we're probably getting close to having to cap some kids' classes because of capacity. So let me tell you about one of the best-kept secrets at New Spring. Our newest of the four services is, is at 6.30 on Saturday night. And as of yet, it's still not as large as some of our other services. So if you would like to deal with less of a parking uh, nightmare and you have plenty of room, you know, larger, larger space and, and, and smaller classrooms for your kids, the 6.30 service, at least as of right now, is a great opportunity for that. So I want to encourage you. All four of our services are the same. The worship is the same. The sermon is theoretically the same. So... Uh, <laughs> I would love to, some of you rascals ride the bus four times because you say there's always a little difference in the sermons, but I just want to let you know about that. 6.30 on Saturday evening is, is a, a little bit less large uh, group than this, and it's a little easier to get around, so I want to encourage you to take advantage of that if, if that's attractive to you. We're in a series right now called The Contest, and it's about spiritual warfare, and let me just tell you right now, one of the things that's really excited me is I had a, I had a concern moving into this series because of its subject matter. I knew how that uh, Hollywood and entertainment have portrayed Satan and demons, and my concern was that a lot of us would sort of be freaked out by that, or even, maybe even question whether or not there's the reality of such things, because the caricature of Satan and demons in Hollywood leads us to look at it as fiction, and, and I would agree with you, if all I had was entertainment and, and books and, and that kind of thing, I would probably look at it as fictional. But the Bible, of course, presents a very different scenario. The Bible tells us that what we're up against is not what we've seen in movies. What we're up against is spirit beings, angels that have fallen. The Bible calls demons. And, and one of the things that's really excited me is that you've accepted it as that. And, and it's been exciting for me to see how you've approached the material that we've covered up to this point. If you've been here in the first three weekends, by now this is familiar language to you. Ephesians 6, which is the definitive chapter in the Bible on spiritual warfare, verse 12 says this, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. You know, and, and as we've said, and I know you may be even getting, be getting tired of this, but if there's one concept I want us all to get and, and to own and to embrace, it's that we never fight against people. If you're a Christ follower, you have no enemies. People may think that they're your enemies, but you know they're not the enemy. You, you never fight against people. Uh, I, I, I love all the stories that you guys are telling me and writing me. And, and last weekend I talked to a really wonderful couple here at New Spring. And we were just kind of talking about various things. And they moved into the subject matter of our series. And they were talking about getting into a conflict like all of us married people get into, you know. And even those of you who are dating. You know, just one of those conflicts where you're telling her everything wrong with her. And she's telling you everything wrong with you. Ever been in one? You guys are looking at me like you've never been in that kind of conflict before. <laughs> So they were, they were in that kind of thing, and I guess she was just sort of like telling him what was wrong with him, and all of a sudden she just stopped and said, hey, wait a minute, you're not my enemy. And they both began to laugh, and I thought, wow, if we could just get that, if we could get that the enemy is not the person we're married to, it's not our kids, if you, and as I shared with you in the first weekend, if you have more than one kid, you're going to have one kid that's going to teach you how to pray. <laughs> you won't have to ask how to pray. You, 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 you turn into a parent, you'll know how to pray. You got one kid that's going to teach you more about prayer than you've ever been taught before. But your kids are never the enemies. Your, your, your parents are, you know, you know what Mark Twain said. 
and he talked about that tension between kids and parents. He said when a, a boy turns 13, put him in a box and cut a hole big enough for him to breathe. And then he said when he turns 17, plug up the hole. And some of you 17-year-old kids are saying, I think that should happen with my parents. It's just life. I mean, you know, we, we get into conflicts, and, and, and it's so easy to think that people are the enemy. It's, it's the person we're married to. It's our kids. It's our parents. It's our in-laws. It's the people who live next door. It's the people that I work with who get it in for me. And, and I think that one of the mistakes that Christians make is that we think that people are the enemy. And sometimes, one of the, and, and I shared this with you, and I'm so passionate about this, and I hope the passion comes across. I don't think this is the nature of New Spring, but it's the nature with a lot of Christian churches that if people have a different lifestyle from us, or if they have a different belief system from us, somehow the church can turn those people into enemies. What a tragic mistake that is. Because even if people live their lives 180 degrees different from us or what the Bible says, we need to understand they're fellow victims. Why would we ever make enemies out of fellow victims? We do not fight against flesh and blood enemies. That is as simple as, I mean, it's like breaking a BB to break that statement. We do not fight against flesh and blood enemies. But who do we fight against? Well, you read on to the verse, we fight against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers of the dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. All four of those, as we shared in week one, are references to demons. Now, I, I wonder sometimes, as a student of the Bible, why didn't God make this a lot simpler? Why didn't he just say, we don't fight against people, but we fight against demons? And he could have said it that way. But I think what he wanted us to understand is there's four aspects to the spiritual warfare that we're in. We need to understand the enemy that we're up against. And those four terminologies give us four different aspects of these spiritual enemies that we're up against. The first thing has to do with their authority. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, screwed up, they turned over kingdom authority to the dark side. That is why Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. And so, it, 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 and if you, honestly, if you look at our world today, if you look at a lot of the power centers, you would say a lot of the power centers are basically evil, and that's not by accident. So the first terminology is that we're against those forces, spiritual forces that have authority. The second is a reference to their power. The, the demons that we're up against have great power. In the Bible, demons, as you know, are angels. These are angels that went with Satan in his insurrection, and God thumped them out of heaven. But you can read about the power of angels in various places in the Bible. In fact, there's one point where an army came up against Israel, and one angel wiped out an army of 185,000. So we understand they are, these are powerful creatures. So we're up against authority, we're up against power, then we understood that there are certain demons that are assigned to certain parts of our world. Satan is organized. There's structure. So here's the thing. We're not up against a chaotic enemy. We're up against a, an authoritative enemy, a powerful enemy, an organized enemy, and then finally the fourth one, the fourth term, term there is agents of depravity. So if you wonder why you and I live in a moral sewage pit in the world that we live in, it's not by accident. It's not some sort of neutral gravity that just brings our world down to filth. They're agents of depravity in our world. So that's what we're up against. We're up against authority, power, organization, and we're up against really dirty foes. Now, it would sound like it's not a fair fight. 
In fact, the title of my talk, and I don't, I don't hardly ever do this anymore. I mean, we, we, we did It's Not a Fair Fight, part one. We talked about the importance of submission. It's not a fair fight last week, part two. We talked about asking God for help. And today we're going to talk about It's Not a Fair Fight, part three. I rarely ever have the same title for a sermon three weeks in a row. But when I thought about the fact that I don't fight people, that I'm fighting against these unseen forces, my first reaction was it's not a fair fight. But then when I saw 2 Corinthians 10, I realized, yeah, it's not a fair fight. It's not fair to the demons. Because the Bible says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So God is saying, look, Mark, if you will fight with, divine means God, if you'll fight with God weapons, it's not a fair fight to the enemy. So one of the key things as we talked about, and I'll try, to, I'll try to quit reviewing real quick here, but one of the key things that Satan wants to get you and me to do is to go after the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons. He doesn't want you to know what your real weapons are. Now, before I introduce weapon three, I want, to, I want to make a point. A lot of people fear Satan or demons because they're convinced that those forces are going to bring catastrophic damage into our lives. It's like I'm afraid of the devil because he's going to do something catastrophic to me. I think that's a misplaced fear. Yeah, it happens occasionally, a la Job chapter 1. But number one, God always permits it. And as I said, number two, I think it happens very rarely. I think it's very rare that Satan or his demons just bring catastrophic damage. I think they work in our lives primarily in two ways. Number one, they stir up people to create difficulty for us. This is why we often think that people are the enemy. Remember there was a point where Peter tried to convince Jesus not to go to the cross? Do you remember how Jesus reacted to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. He didn't say, get behind me, Peter. He understood at that moment that Satan had put a temptation in Peter's mind, and Peter was speaking for the enemy. And so from time to time, I think that that's one way that Satan will work in your life and my life. He will set somebody up in our life and get them to think in a particular way that is wrong. Have you ever had somebody who just got it in for you, and you're thinking to yourself, what did I ever do to her? What did I ever do to him? Or maybe you'll get, this, this is one way I think Satan really works in our lives by using people. A lot of times you will, you will discover that there's somebody in your life who begins to interpret what you say and what you do with the worst possible motive. And you'll think, wow, I didn't mean that. I wasn't thinking that. I wasn't trying to hurt that person. I was trying to help that person. Why is this person so angry at me? I think that's one way that Satan works in our lives. And, and the reason why I've given you these weapons in their order is I wanted to deal with the fact that some of the damage that Satan is going to do in our lives is through other people. So what do we learn week one? We learn that, look, when, you're, when Satan attacks you, you submit to God. You, you line up under God's authority. And, and why is that so powerful? Because here's the thing. When somebody gets, gets it in for you, you want God to deal with that. You don't want to deal with that. You want to take your hands off and back away. What is our inclination when somebody gets it in for us? When somebody starts hurting you or me or starts criticizing us, what is our natural human reaction? We want to say, hey, wait a minute here. I deserve better than that. You hear that? We, we get lifted up in pride. What does Satan know? He knows that God resists the proud. 
So what he wants to do is to lure us into reacting to people who bring damage into our lives by making a personal thing and getting proud. So what do we do? We say, hey, look, it's not about me anyway. I'm just going to humble myself under God's power, and then God takes care of it. Or last week, we learned the importance of praying and asking God for help. So when somebody gets it in, in for you or somebody creates damage in your life, don't, don't take it personal. Don't get reactive and start getting built up in pride. Just submit to God's plan in your life. Submit to God's will and pray and ask for help. Let God take care of it. But now here's the salient point that I want to get to. 98% of the damage that Satan has done in Mark Hoover's life is not by bringing catastrophic damage. And even though I've had people against me from time to time, God's taking care of all that. You know, the Bible says no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. It doesn't mean that no weapon will be formed against you. It's just that they won't prosper. So don't worry about that. 98% of the damage that Satan has brought into my life is what he has got me to do to myself. Can I get a witness on that one? See, here is what the enemy knows. If he can lure me into destructive behavior, I will suffer for it. But he also understands God very well firsthand. See, many of us have the concept that God is a God of love, it doesn't matter what I do. God is a God of love, and it matters very much what you do. Because you and I will harvest what we plant. In other words, whatever we do will come back to us. Satan understands that better than anybody else. So Satan understands that here's the thing, although God loves Mark very much, that Mark by his conduct and by his attitudes, as much as God loves me, I can back God into a corner in which God has to say, i got to do something. I can't let Mark do that and get by with it. Every one of us who is a parent understands that very clearly. We have kids, we love them, we want to affirm them, we want to do good things for them. But how many of you as parents know that you can have a kid that as much as you want to do good, they'll back you into a corner where finally you got to do something because you love the child? And Satan gets that. Oh, does he get that. So what he wants to do is he wants to tempt me and lure me into attitudes, behavior, and actions that will cause me to suffer because of that. And so with that in mind, I want to take you to weapon three. If weapon one is submit before God, if weapon two is pray, let me give you the divine weapon number three. And this weapon is so powerful to keep us from doing damage to ourselves. Ephesians 6, which by the way, once again, is the definitive chapter in the Bible on spiritual warfare. Just five verses after it says we don't fight against people, but we fight against demons. The Bible says this, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You and I know the Word of God is the Bible. Now, does God mean that you should just carry the Bible with you everywhere you go? Oh, man, I got the sword of the Spirit with me. I've heard people say that before. I just take the Bible with me wherever I go. There's a little more to it than that. And, and, And some of you who grew up in church have heard this one. If I had a nickel for every stupid thing I've heard in church, I'd be a rich man. I was a kid in the church in one of the services last night. My dad's a wonderful pastor, and when I was a kid, he would take me to what we used to call revival meetings. That was like services that happened every night of the week, and every church in town that was having revivals, my dad took me to. I was joking on stage one weekend, and I said, my dad took me to every revival except Creedence Clearwater. And uh, (laughs) I know where all the baby boomers are today. And after the service, my dad came to me, he said, who's Creedence Clearwater? So I, I told him. He said, yeah, we wouldn't have gone to that. And, um, <laughs> so 
So I, I thought that was pretty funny. And I was telling our student pastor, it's been about 10 years ago. I told our student pastor, I said, Keenan, that's the funniest thing. I, I talked about Creedence Clearwater. And my dad said, who's Creedence Clearwater? And I was kind of laughing about it until Keenan said, yeah, all the teenagers want to know who Creedence Clearwater was too. And then I <laughs> realized how old I was. Well, let me tell you one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in church, okay? I've heard people say, look, man, when you're under attack from Satan, just quote scripture. He's scared of scripture and he'll run away. Oh, yeah. We're going to see today that our first parent quoted scripture to him, and we're going to go a little further. We're going to find out that Satan quoted scripture. Trust me, he's not afraid of you carrying your Bible, he's not afraid of you quoting scripture. But there is a way to use the weapon, and we'll talk about it today. But I want to work you into it. This is going to be a work project today. I don't know that we could call this a talk. In fact, there's going to be a point where i got to just stop the sermon and say, this, the ball's in your court, my court, and we're going to have to determine what we do. I just want to introduce you to the concept. But by the way, before I get into that, could I tell you that I think some of us, especially those of us who tend to be more religious, a lot of you come to New Spring and you don't have religion in your background, and you can feel sort of like, wow, I feel like I'm behind. Sometimes I think those of you who don't have traditional religious background, you're way ahead of us. Because so many of us who grew up in church, we're still trying to shake a bunch of stuff out of our hair. But there's a thought that a lot of traditional Christians have. is like, oh no, I'm under attack, so I just need to hunker down in my house and protect myself against the enemy. Well, the Bible does say stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a defensive aspect to this. But could I just remind us all here that the Bible is using the term weapons? I mean, I don't want to be melodramatic by this, but I think it's God's intention that we take the fight to the dark side. I don't think that we're just supposed to hunker down and say, okay, I'm just going to defend myself. I mean, I think God wants us to go out and do some battle. I think God wants us to go out and kick some backside, some spiritual backside, not of people, but of the dark side. And we need to grasp that. In fact, as I study this series, I thought it sort of brings up the question, who's hunting who here? Well, if you are going to deal with the enemy, and if you are going to take the sword of the Spirit, and after all, I mean, I do think we need to take the fight to the other side because a lot of us have marriages to protect. A lot of us have kids that we're trying to raise. A lot of us have friends who are in bondage to the forces of the dark side. If we're going to go out and try to do some battle against the enemy, we need to understand him. The Bible tells us, and this is not going to be on the screens, but in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the Bible says we can't know how God thinks. God's thinking is so huge. His thoughts are bigger than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And so even though we can understand some things about God, we can never truly get him. But Satan is not God's equal. And here's what Scripture says. The Bible says we can know how he thinks. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, here's a big verse that you and I need to keep before us. God picks up the sentence in the middle. So that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Now, there is a Greek word that does mean scheme. I don't think that's the best translation in the world. It's the Greek word for thinking. And it says, basically, we know how he thinks. So let me do something. The rest of our talk today, we're going to look at two stories. We're going to look at a person or a couple who didn't use the sword of the Spirit and they lost. And then we're going to look at our champion who did use the sword of the Spirit. And this is, let me tell you what makes this really attractive to me. I love sports on television. You know, if, if, the, if the cable was just all ESPN, that'd be fine with me. Just all different kinds of ESPN channels, NFL channel. But one thing about watching sports is I have to watch commercials. 
And there's a certain kind of commercial, there are the endorsement commercials, and nobody does it better than Nike, right? Uh, there's Tiger Woods back in his heyday advertising a Nike ball, a little swoosh on it. And Tiger is hitting the ball as only Tiger could back in the day. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Maybe if I switch from top flight to Nike, <laughs> I could hit the ball like Tiger. <laughs> no. But Nike never did it better than when they took the best, ba the best basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, and made some sneakers and called them, what a great name, Air Jordan. I think, aren't we like in the 26th version of that? Hundreds of dollars for a pair of sneakers. I think we'd probably laugh if we knew how little that it cost to make them. But you and I, in fact, in the, I think it was in the eight, maybe it's the 80s and 90s, I can't remember. There was actually, Nike had a slogan that said, be like Mike. Now, it'd be pretty foolish for me, wouldn't it, if I bought a pair of Air Jordans and thought I could play like Michael Jordan? Yeah. But here's what's great about the weapon that we're going to deal with. It is endorsed by the champion, and if you and I use it, we can be like him. Okay? Let's go to work. This isn't a sermon. You and I are going to go to work. We're going to explore two stories in the Bible, and we're going to see how it didn't work not to use the sword of the Spirit, and we're going to see how it did work. What's really interesting about this, the first story is our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we're going to see how they lost paradise and screwed us up in the process. And, and then we're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to see how he encountered the same kind of onslaught and how everything that our first parents lost, how he got it back for us by using the sword of the Spirit. What I find interesting, and maybe this is a sidelight, and I'll give it to you if you think it is, but I think it's interesting that our first parents lost the fight in a perfect environment. They were in a garden, they were in paradise, they were fully fed, they had everything they needed, and they turned around and lost the fight to the enemy. Jesus, on the other hand, will win it back for us after not eating for 40 days in the middle of a desert. Let's go to our first parents. This is Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, we know that's Satan, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. What's the first thing that Satan challenges? Word of God. And notice first, in, in a moment, I'm going to give this away now, but in a moment he's going to flat out deny it. But he starts by questioning. If Satan can just put a question in your mind about what God says, he's halfway where he needs to be. If he can just get you to question if God is good, if God answers prayer, if God really cares about you, if he can just get you to question some of it, he's on his way. Well, the woman answers in verse 2, of course we may eat from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And every once in a while somebody will say, well, Man, that's a simple physical action, eating fruit. Can that be all that serious? Most sin is simple physical action. Most of it's not too complicated. The main thing is they just flip God off. I mean, God said, this is my rule, don't break it. And, 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 but look at this. I mean, for those of us who grew up hearing, all you have to do is quote scripture. Notice this, the, the woman said, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So if quoting scripture was enough to cause the enemy to run away, that should have done it right there, but it didn't, of course. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful, its fruit looked delicious, she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, 
So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves, and you and I know the rest of the story. God kicked them out of the garden. The world as we know it has the dark side in it because of that. Why did it work? I mean, because if you think about Eve and Adam, they loved God. They had an experience with God that you and I don't have. They actually interacted with God daily. If questioning God was all Satan did, I don't think he would have ever been successful. Think about this for a moment. Suppose that Satan had just met Eve or Adam walking around, and Satan said, hey, you know, um, I don't think God's near as big as you think he is. And I tell you what, I think if you would just flip him off, I think you would be, I think you'd be better off. You think Adam and Eve would have listened to that? No. You ready for this? Satan is successful getting us to doubt God's word because he adds bait. He adds bait. See, if questioning God is like a hook, the bait is what covers the hook. And, and, and that's not Mark. This is in the book of James chapter 1. Temptation, that's solicitation to do wrong. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. Now, James said, you know, temptation, when it works in our lives, there's two phases to it. There's the enticing and there's the dragging away. All you guys and gals who fish, you understand that. You don't need the Greek translation. You know that with fishing, there's the enticing and there's the dragging away. I mean, if you just threw the hook out in the water, fish is not going to jump on the hook. Man, you have to make that fish think there's a meal there. And there's the bait. And here's the thing. All of you who are really good at fishing, you understand that you have to become a student of the fish to know what kind of bait is going to be attractive, either to make that fish think that it's lunch or something that will, will catch the fish attention. In fact, those of you who are really good, you know which bait to use, not only for which particular fish, but at certain times of the year. And if you go fishing in a particular lake that's out of town or out of state, probably one of the first things you'll do is you'll find somebody who's really a pro, really good in that area, and you'll ask them, what's working right now? And you put it out there in the water, and you work the bait, and the fish swims along and thinks, ooh, here's a meal. And he grabs and jumps to get the meal. Mm, and then you set the hook, and then there's the dragging away. There's the point where the fish is free, but the next thing you know, the fish cannot get off the line unless it's on my line. And then he can, but on <laughs> your line. And could I just tell you this? Satan knows the bait that works in your life. I I've told you before, you're not following a superstar. I I'm just like you. I don't get any discounts because I'm a minister or a pastor. I have to obey just like you have to obey. Well, my big issue is anxiety. Man, Satan knows what bait to put out there in the water for me. Something that will attach to my fears. For some of you, it's lust. For some of you, it's money. For some of you, it's power. For some of you, it's security. He understands where your weakness is, and he'll put the bait out in the water, and he'll work the bait. And in the process, he's going to try to get you to question God's word. And the moment that you do, and you go for the bait, he sets the hook. And then we get dragged away, and we know what that's like. Could I tell you, he only uses three kinds of bait. And you need to understand what these kinds of bait are. I mean, this is in 1 John 2, verse 16. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the three kinds of bait he uses. Lust of the flesh, I want what makes me feel good. Lust of the eyes, I want what I see. Pride of life, I need to come off looking like the hero. That's all he uses. And by the way, the end of that verse said, 
and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. How many of us, and I think probably when we get right down to it, this is all of us, all of us have taken some of the bait, all of us have questioned God's word, all of us have been dragged away. But, but how many of us could testify to the fact that a lot of the times that when the bait was out there, we thought, this is going to last. What I'm being offered here is going to last. What I'm being tempted with is going to last. Maybe it was an affair, and Satan put somebody in your life and said, look, she understands you. Your wife doesn't understand you. She understands you. He makes your life. Your hus- makes you, he makes you laugh. Your husband is a drag. If you leave your husband and hook up with this guy, leave your wife and hook up with this gal, it's going to be lasting. And then after your life was shattered and it blew apart, you said, no, it didn't last. I was lied to. Or how many of you thought, man, if I use this substance, it's going to make me feel good. I'm going to be able to face the day. But the next thing you know, you need more and more of it, or you need harder stuff, or more of, more of the vodka. See, it doesn't last. That's what the Bible is saying. Well, he certainly used it on our first mom, didn't he, on Eve? There was the lust of the eyes, Genesis 3, 6. She saw the tree was beautiful. Lust of the flesh, looked delicious. Genesis 3, 6. Pride of life, 3, 5. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God. See? Eyes, flesh, pride of life. Roll forward several thousand years. I mean, God has kept his word. In Genesis chapter 3, if you looked at verse 15, did you know the first promise that God would send Jesus into the world happened on the same day when our first parents screwed up? Do you, know the, do you know who God made the promise to that he was going to send a champion into the world? It wasn't Adam and it wasn't Eve. It was Satan. God looked at Satan and he said, I know you think you've won the day because you've beaten the first two human beings. You've beaten the first Adam. But God said, I'm going to send my champion into the world and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to stomp your head. That's in Genesis 3.15. And several thousand years later, he came just like God said, Jesus, God and human at the same time. He was God and able to do everything God could do, but he was human and he had all the limitations. And guys, could I just, I wish I knew how to get this across, but I'm going to take a crack at it. Do you realize that our first parents caused us to be born separated from God? If somebody were to say, what do I have to do to go to hell? The, abs- the truth is absolutely nothing. We were messed up because of what our parents did. We were in them when they sinned, and they messed us up. God sent his Savior into the world so that he could do the very opposite, so that he could win back everything that they lost, so that even though we all fell in Adam, so that we could all be made alive in Jesus Christ. If you want to read about this, go home, open your Bible to the book of Romans, read chapters 1 through 5. It'll be clearer for you than it ever has been before. I say all that to give you this. If Jesus falls one time, game, set, match, it's over for us. We have no hope. Keep that in mind. It was right after his baptism. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, now I've fasted 21 days before. I've never fasted 40 days and nights. I would assume the next statement is unnecessary. He was hungry. (laughs) That is for people like me who are just slow, okay? He was hungry. The tempter, 
Who is the tempter? The same one who was in the Garden of Eden. Satan came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Well, if I'm Jesus and I've been fasting 40 days, rocks would start looking like bread. <laughs> and Satan said, Hey, look, you're the Son of God. You don't need to wait on God, man. Just do your mojo. Make these stones turn into bread. Is verse 4 behind me? All right, I want you to read. After the first two words, I want you to read the next three with me, all right? Just, I want us to grasp this. Jesus answered, it is written. Whap! Out comes the sword. Jesus said, it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan says, okay, round two. The devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said... Throw yourself down. By the way, Satan, are we, in, are we in the Bible here? Is this all about Bible? Satan says, I can quote the Bible. Look at this. Now Satan says, you know, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, I don't know if you get this or not, but at this point, I get the feeling Jesus is looking at him like, jerk. <laughs> I mean, do you get that? Does Jesus think that way? I don't know. Verse 10. <laughs> Jesus said, the reason I picked that up is, look at this, away from me. Get out of here, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord God and serve him only. And it looks to me like verse 11 says the devil left him. And then God sent his angels to take care of Jesus. Okay, let's break this down. First of all, the devil said to him, look, you're hungry. It's the lust of the flesh. I mean, bread, what's not to understand here? Just take your power, command these stones to be, you don't need to wait on God to supply your needs. Just make this bread, lust to the flesh. And then he said, look, you know what? You don't need to go to the cross and rise from the grave so people will know you're the Messiah. If you just jump off the temple and the angels catch you, everybody's going to say, he must be the Messiah. You wouldn't have to go to the cross. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that based on Scripture. And then, then he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, lust of the eyes, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you. You won't have to go to the cross. two things, and I'll try to finish up. Jesus did not win by carrying a Bible with him, and he did not win by quoting scripture. He won, and this is it. You ready for this? We've spent the whole day getting to this one point. Taking the sword of the Spirit means that you are under the authority of the scripture, and you are doing what you do based on what God said. Because see, what Satan wants you to do is he wants you to substitute accepting God's authority in your life and put his authority in its place. And see, Eve quoted scripture, but she communicated to Satan that she was open to a different way of thinking. Yeah, I know what God said, but I'm open to what you're saying. And, and the thing that Jesus did was Jesus basically said, look, I'm not open at all to what you're saying. I'm convinced that God is right, and I am acting under his authority. And oh, by the way, Satan, you're also under its authority. 
And the second thing I want to point out is a lot of you have not followed Jesus very long, and you're saying, well, Mark, the Bible's a very big book, and I'm kind of intimidated by this because I don't know the whole Bible. You ready for this? You know the three statements that Jesus quoted is all from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. Actually, the chapters weren't put in there until the Middle Ages. It was all out of one speech that Moses made. I love the book of Deuteronomy. I think Jesus loved it like I do. Deuteronomy is a book for winners. And Moses was talking to a young generation. And this whole speech, Moses just said, do you want to know how to live? This is how to live. Jesus pulled three statements out of that speech by Moses on how to live. And he just slapped the devil around with the sword with those three statements. You don't have to know the whole Bible. It's really important to know the parts, though, that deal with the area where you're especially vulnerable. You don't have to quote it verbatim. You just have to know what God said and surrender your life to its authority. Well, in closing today, I told the 930 crowd I feel like Columba. I just keep saying one more thing. Um, I'm probably going to offend some people here today with this one. But my job's not to be popular, my job's to be right, okay? So for, and again, this is one of those things where if you come from a traditional religious background, you, you could be offended by what I'm gonna say. But I just, I just wanna make this clear. Have, have you ever heard somebody claim to bind Satan? I've heard people pray, Satan, I bind you. I'm thinking, boy, you sure isn't bound in Andover where I live. Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus. That's not how it works. I wish it were that easy. What would it mean to bind Satan? He's a spirit, so clearly you're not binding. I mean, one of the reasons why Christians get mixed up on that is they juxtapose two verses together that aren't meant to go together. There was a verse that Jesus said to the apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then Jesus talked about his reason why he had power over Satan. He said, you can't go into a strong man's house and spoil his house unless you bind him first. And people put those two verses together. and That's not what Jesus meant. How can you bind Satan in your life Really? Well, it's as simple as this. He's powerful. He has an agenda in your life. But when you use the sword of the Spirit, you keep him from fulfilling his agenda. Ergo, you have bound the devil. I mean, when Satan comes to tempt you, guys, when he comes to tempt you with somebody that you work with and say, hey, you know what? It might be fun to have roll in the hay with her. And you say, no, no. The Bible tells me to be satisfied with the wife of my youth, and I'm going to do that. You have bound him from getting you into trouble. That's how you bind the enemy, with the word of God. Submit to its authority. Guys, at this point, I must now stop the sermon and turn it over to you, because you and I have a question before us, which is this. How much time in our day will we give to God's word? I mean, we all have time at work. We have time with family and friends. We have time watching television. We have time on the Internet. How much time will God's word have in our lives? Because you realize now what a huge weapon it is. Every time we have an opportunity to attend worship where the word of God is going to be taught in a way that's salient to our lives, it's important. You want to get as much as God, of God's word in you so that when the enemy comes, you can say, no, I don't have to listen to what you have to say. I'm answering to a higher authority. And so are you. And when you do that, you'll bind him. He'll leave. It'll work. Father, thank you for allowing us to have these services this weekend. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring this message home to us in a powerful way. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me just one more moment? Could be that you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I don't have a relationship with God, or maybe you've tried religion and it's left you empty. I don't believe in religion. I don't, I don't even know what religion is. If I had to explain it, it's just nomenclature that human beings have invented. But there is such a thing as having a relationship with God. And it's not by joining a particular church. It's not by doing good, because who of us could be good enough to go to heaven? It is a gift. Jesus won it for you. In fact, every time you see a cross, let it be a reminder that you cannot earn your way into heaven. A cross says to you that Jesus died in order to pay for your sins. So that anyone, no matter what you've done or how you felt, anyone can have a relationship with God. It's personal, and God calls it in Ephesians 2.8, God calls it a gift. And all you need to do is believe on Jesus and accept him and receive him as your Lord and Savior. In fact, um, if you'd like to do that right now, I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words. In fact, you don't even have to pray them out loud. You can just pray them in your heart. What's important is what you mean. But if you're ready to invite Jesus to come into your life, why don't you do that with me right now? I'm going to pray this prayer slowly. The important thing is that you mean it. And I'll pray it slowly so you can think about the words. Dear Jesus, I know I've done wrong. And I can't be perfect. And I don't know how to pay for my own sins. Even if I could be perfect for the rest of my life, I can't undo what I've already done. But I believe you love me with an unconditional love. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Today I turn from my old way of life and commit my life to Jesus. Forgive me, please, and make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen.